Hello, everybody. I'm Harry Draypush, CEO of Amware Fulfillment, and I'm your host for today's segment of Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. With me today is Jim Tompkins, Chairman of Tompkins Ventures and Tompkins Leadership. Jim provides strategic leadership for the development, growth, and success of Tompkins Ventures, which matches brands with the right partners to drive innovation and competitive advantage. Jim was the founder and chairman of Tompkins International, Tompkins Solutions, Tompkins Material Handling Integration, Tompkins Robotics, and Tompkins Fulfillment Services. Through the last three decades, he has been a thought leader in all aspects of the supply chain, having written 31 books and spoken at over 2,000 events. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you, Harry, and it's good to be here, and I appreciate the introduction. Well, it's great, so we'll jump right into it. You've had a very long career in the supply chain. Could you summarize for us how you wound up where you are today? Well, it actually began when my father told me when I was a youngster that I wanted to be an engineer when I grew up which was interesting because my dad never graduated from high school. So I'm not sure how he knew what an engineer was, but he said, you like to take things apart and put them back together. So you're going to be an engineer. So that's the path I was on. I went to Purdue. I selected industrial engineering. And in that pursuit, I found what we back then called logistics. We didn't call it supply chain back then. I got excited about it and I really got engaged. I had a great set of faculty and I wound up getting my bachelor's, master's, and PhD all from Purdue in industrial engineering. I then had a special opportunity to go in the Army, not by choice, but I actually wound up enlisting so I could finish my PhD. Spent three years in the Army that turned out to be very meaningful service. And then I got on with my career, which was to be a college professor. But when I went off to be a professor here in North Carolina, I found that I wasn't making the amount of money I thought I should make. And so I started teaching a couple courses on the side. And people attended those courses and said, Jim, do you know how to do that or just run your mouth? And basically what I was talking about is what today we would call just-in-time inventory. I was talking about inventory is only good when it's moving and when it's flowing. And that's what we want to work on in logistics. And people gave me a chance to do some consulting. I started a little consulting on the side. Three years later, my wife told me that my consulting income was six times my professor income. I then decided to leave the university and make consulting my full-time work. And that's when I began Tompkins International with a real focus. We added to that Tompkins Robotics. We added to that Tompkins Material Handling Integration. We added to that uh, Tompkins Fulfillment. And the business grew and prospered. And I did that for the next 45 years until 2020 when COVID hit. And when COVID hit, I said, you know, this model has worked really well but I think I need to do something different. The amount of innovation that we're going to need moving forward is much greater than the amount of innovation we've had in the past. And so I'm going to start a new business, Tompkins Ventures, which is focused on innovation and problem solving through matchmaking. And so I've been doing supply chain for 50 years and I love it. It's so much fun. If if I was in any regular career like accounting or marketing or something, I probably wouldn't have lasted this long. But you and I stay in it because we're constantly learning. Every day is a new learning opportunity. So I just love it. I'm having fun at it. And I'm, I'm going to keep doing it for a while. Yeah, I would agree that the industry is so fluid and so dynamic. It changes daily and the challenges are always different. It's an exciting business. But I think if you've been in it for 50 years, 
like me, it wasn't logistics when we got into it. It was warehousing and distribution. Yes. We didn't get that fancy logistics title till maybe the mid-90s, early 90s. Prior to that, right? Warehousing and distribution. Jim, over the years, you've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of B2C fulfillment operations. What are the biggest mistakes that you see companies making? Well, in B2C and, in fact, across the whole warehousing supply chain space, the biggest problem I see is they don't do strategy before structure. I am a huge, huge, huge fan of asking the question, what are we trying to accomplish here? Who's the customer? What's our value proposition? And so I see particularly in B2C, because some folks got into it thinking it was a new field. You know, you and I've been doing e-com for over 20 years, for crying out loud. And B2C is happening at a very rapid pace. But I think if you get your structure in front of your strategy, you're going to make mistakes. And so we got to really work on strategy before structure. The second thing is getting technology right. We oftentimes get ourselves involved with making what I think short-sighted technology decisions, which wind up biting us in the foot. I also think there's some challenges with defining customer requirements. What do our customers really want? Five years ago, everyone was trying to get to three-day delivery. And then three years ago, we were trying to get to two-day delivery. And then two years ago, trying to get to one-day delivery. And now some folks are going off and trying to do same-day delivery. And we really got to ask the questions, you know, the customers really want that. Is that something that's really in their best interest? And so the question is not understanding the requirements, I think, are a problem. And then I think the other issue is believing the requirements we have to be correct. I think the reality is with the amount of disruption that's taken place over the last three years in particular, the requirements that we have written down on the piece of paper aren't what really going to happen. I mean, goodness sakes, you know very well the three PLs, you get a RFP and you bid on it and you're not one day into the implementation and the requirements change. And they say, no, this is what we need. And you get working on that. And then two months later, well, we need to, well, that's reality. That's not people doing a poor job. That's just reality. So we really got to understand the requirement to be adaptable and agile and not plan on those requirements really occurring. Yeah, certainly great insights. And the comment about requirements changing, again, goes to the fluidity of our business. And not only that requirements change, you find out that the data is not quite correct that they gave you. And then now you're scrambling to get the real data. So yeah, I think a big challenge or a big mistake I've seen is working on data that's not complete, that's not accurate, that's a small snapshot that's not representative of the whole universe. Jim, when you and I entered the workforce, we were expected to kind of stay with our employers for a very long time, maybe even retire from them. The idea of job hopping every year or two years, you know, you avoided hiring people like that. Finding and retaining labor is such a critical issue for today's fulfillment operations. What do you advise clients to do for this challenge? Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Harry. Ten years ago, you and I looked at a resume and if a guy had worked 30 years and had four jobs, we thought, well, I'm not going to hire this guy. He's a job hopper. But Nowadays, every resume, not due to the guy job hopping, but just to the reality of business, they've had 10 jobs over the last 20 years, and that's reality. Well, I think it starts with knowing your team. Who are they? What are they about? Let's face it, the young people that are 20, 25 years old are drastically different than folks our age. And so we got to understand what they're about. And then we really got to invest in them. We got to take a personal interest in them. We got to get to know them. We got to help them grow. We have to treat them with respect. 
you know, they're different than us in a lot of ways, but they're similar in us in a lot of ways. I think we got to look at the environmental, social and governance aspects. The younger generation is very interested in the environment, and that's a good thing. I've learned a lot about that, and the whole circular economy is important. How we deal with respecting individuals and looking at the dignity and equity and the inclusion and diversity of the staff is really important. I think if you have all women or all men or all white or all black or all Mexican or whatever, you have a problem. There's value in diversity. And so I think we got to show people that we really respect who they are, that we're going to invest in them and we want them to be with us for the long term. And if we do that sincerely, I think we will have much less turnover and churn as opposed to the people that don't do those things. Yeah, it's a wonderful insight. I think for someone like me, connecting with someone who is less than half of my age today, what motivates them, what makes them tick, it's certainly on us to find that out. I think that's key. And when we came into the workforce, the expectation was everybody speak English. And if you didn't speak English, you had the problem. And today, we have to be diverse enough to be able to communicate in many, many languages. Earlier when we were chatting, you mentioned technology. I'm going to, for sake of this conversation, throw automation into that. So what's your approach when advising clients on the use of automation? Well, back to the point that you made a little bit ago, Harry, we need to make sure that our automation can fluctuate with the requirements. Hard, rigid automation is not exciting to me anymore. I want adaptable. I want modular. I want automation that can allow me to work on Cyber Monday as well as it can on uh, June 12th. And we need to be able to work well in the morning. We're going to need to be able to work well in the afternoon because the requirements change that much. I hate brittle things. Brittle things are things that you just bend them a little bit and they break. And so what we need to have is automation that is adaptable. And I like the word that is against my training. My training, a PhD industrial engineer, what I'm supposed to do is optimize things. But I think optimization is way overrated because of the changing requirements. And so instead of optimizing, what I want to do is optionize. What are the options? And so I want to have the ability to do this, do this, or do this. I learned this from my son when he was seven years old, which was 30 years ago. But when he was seven years old, he came to me, he says, Daddy, I'm going to quit football. I said, Jimmy, you're not a quitter. He said, Dad, I'm not a quitter, but I'm not going to play football anymore. I said, well, why don't you want to play football? He said, well, I play offensive line and defensive line. And he said, what the coach tells me on every play, knock the guy in front of me down. He said, I'm not even involved in the game. I'm just knocking the guy down. And he said, what fun is that? I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I want to play more basketball. I said, why do you want to play basketball? He said, because when I play basketball, the coach respects me. The coach tells me, when you bring the ball up the floor, look at what the defense is doing. If they're doing this, you do this. If they're doing this, you do this. If you start to do this and then they do this, then you do this. And so he's looking at the optionality and he has options and he's using his head. That's what we need to do with our automation going forward is we can work on a slow day and make it work well. We can work on a busy day and make it work well. And we don't invest millions of dollars in something we're going to use two weeks of the year for crying out loud. We got to work around that and make it happen in a way that gives us a good return on investment. I was talking to my kids the other week. They were asking me about how I got started and what it was like. And I first started by saying, well, you know, we've just added robots to our warehouse. We've actually incorporated a drone to help us do some cycle counts in the warehouse, flying around the warehouses. 
I would have never imagined that. I said, we've got voice picking to help people in multiple languages. I said, when I started out in this business, people didn't even have a computer on their desk. And it was like this silence and this stare at me. And they thought I was kidding. They were waiting for me to laugh. And I was like, what do you mean, dad? There was no computers. How did you get things done? I said, well, we use paper and pencil and we used adding machines. And it's like adding machines. It's a very, very different world today. The pace of change is just incredible. What do you see as the line between preserving capital and waiting too long to automate? What do you think is the right trigger point? Well, I think we've waited too long if we find one of two things happening. One, we're not able to provide the customers what they want and what our competition is providing. Or number two, if we're not profitable. Those are the best indicators I have. The objective is not to automate or not to automate. The objective is to meet the customer's requirements, which, first of all, says you got to have enough labor. In this market, you can't get enough labor. So sometimes you automate, not because of the return on investment, but because that's the only way of getting the volume out that you need to get out in that time frame. And so what I want to do is I want to make sure that I'm really servicing the customer and then I'm helping my company be more profitable. And those are the two big indicators that I want to have. And when I see companies try to make decisions, well, the CFO said we've got a 37.6% ROI. And if you're not above, I say, no, wait, wait, that's great theory. But we're in the business here of trying to keep our customers happy. And if you tell me I can't have this automation that only has a 24% after-tax return on investment, we're not going to be able to ship the orders. You need to look at that. And they say, oh, wow, well, that's different. They're looking at a number, but not really looking at how do we make this business really, really work for the long term? The laws of physics don't stop within the four walls of a warehouse. There's only so many people you can cram into a space to do work. At some point, you've got to give them some help, right? And it's not going to be people on people. That's a great point. You talked about the current state of fulfillment is not being really an extension of the past, but a complete reinvention. So for today's operations executive who's responsible for order fulfillment, what's the mindset that they need to bring to the table to meet today's challenges? Well, I think we need to look at how do we reinvent, re-engineer, rework, reuse? How do we innovate? Doing what we've always done doesn't work. And I think one of the biggest problems we have in industry today is there's this guy over here named Charlie, 38 years ago. He graduated from high school and he started driving a fork truck. He put himself through college at nights and then he became a supervisor. Then he became a manager. Then he became vice president of distribution. Then he became the CEO. And now he's running this company. And what his tendency is, is to do what he's always done. You look at the guy, he's had a tremendous career. He's had 38 years of success. He's now the CEO. He's got the house at the beach. He's got a big boat. He's got a nice house. He's put four kids through college. He's successful. And so the tendency is for that person to want to keep doing what he's always done. But especially in the last three years, when we've had an unprecedented level of disruption and tipping points and changes in paradigms, what we now need to do is we need to stop and put a line in the sense and say, yes, but how do we do this better? And I think that's one of my personal challenges. Every single day when I come to this desk and I sit down and I say, okay, how can I do my job better? That's what keeps me going. That's what's exciting. That's what's fun. Coming up with ways that we can do things more ahead of the competition. 
I don't want to be following the competition. I want to be ahead of the competition. And that way I'm going to make sure I give my customers the best possible solution. You know, I remember a little event that happened in 1987. I was in the transport, I was in the LTL trucking business and I had my first operations management position and I had a bunch of trucks that were loaded for delivery and I messed it up. I had the order wrong. I ran down to the dock. I grabbed the guys and I said, listen, guys, here are the bills. I need you to pull this stuff back, strip these trailers and reload them because I made a mistake. And so they're standing there looking at me and I said, what's the problem? And they said, we just loaded these things. We don't really feel like we should have to redo it. These were Teamsters, by the way. And I said, what difference does it make to you? The rate of pay is the same. And they said, you know, we want to make a difference when we come to work too. We like to feel like we're making progress. And many of our listeners manage a team of people. You know, I'd love to hear you talk about the evolution from traditional leadership, which is, I think, what I was doing on the dock there, to what you call insightful leadership. How might our listeners need to change their leadership styles to really be effective today? Thank you very much, Harry, for mentioning my new book. I just happen to have a copy of it sitting right next to me, hoping you'd mention it. The book's Insightful Leadership, Surfing the Waves of Organizational Excellence. And what's happened over the last three years is the normal is gone. The new normal is disruption. And this is not just COVID. COVID is one of the topics, but I actually began work on what I now call insightful leadership in 2018, because what I was seeing is the magnitude and the frequency of disruptions are more and more and more and more frequent. I did a video on YouTube in June of 2019. And in June of 2019 on YouTube, you can go watch the video today. I say 2020 is going to be the year of the greatest disruption of all of time. Now, in February, March of 2020, people called me up and said I predicted COVID. I don't even know. I had no idea what a pandemic was. I had no idea what a COVID was. I I didn't predict COVID. But what I saw was this disruption was going to continue. And so what we need to understand in the old days, what we did is we had, here's our sales plan. Here's our volume we have to do. Here's our staff plan. Here's our budget. And here's how we're going to execute. Well, in today's world, as we've already said, it's not like that. Stuff changes literally on a daily basis. And so what we need to do is we need to be looking out for the opportunities to improve. The subtitle of the book is Surfing the Waves of Organizational Excellence. So surfing is the analogy I choose to use. Now, if I'm surfing and I'm trying to surf into the picture and I'm sitting on my board, I'm out in the ocean, do I look at the shore? No, I look over my shoulder and I'm looking at the waves and I'm saying, hey, you see this third wave back? This third wave back, the way it's rolling, the way it's tripping, my wisdom of waves tells me that's going to be a great wave to ride. And then as the wave approaches, I get in front of the wave and I harness the power of that disruption and I fly to the shore. My hair is blowing, but little hair I have, and I'm going, whoa, that's a ride of my life. Okay, now I've harnessed the power of that wave. That's what we need to do in business. We need to look at what's happening around us, be insightful, and then get ahead of the wave and turn it into an accelerator to allow us to improve our performance. We're speaking with Jim Tompkins, chairman of Tompkins Ventures and Tompkins Leadership. Jim, you work with many brands when they reach a tipping point on decisions that are related to outsourcing fulfillment services. What advice do you have for our listeners who may be thinking of either outsourcing for the first time 
or maybe it's time to switch providers. I think that person is thinking wisely. I think that's something we do need to look at. The reality is, with the exception of the top 2% of the e-commerce players, if you're doing B2C, it's highly unusual that you can do it all yourself. You're not going to be able to afford to have five or six different facilities across the country. So maybe you have one on the east and one on the west, but to make the country work, you need one in Dallas, you need one in Chicago, you need one in Atlanta to allow you to have the ability to deliver. So distributed logistics is the name of the game. And so you can't travel faster, but they wanted to get the order quicker. So what you got to do is you got to disperse the inventory. Distribute your inventory says you're going to need multiple facilities. And so I think it makes sense when a company starts out, maybe they farm out the whole thing. As they grow, maybe they decide, okay, we're going to have one on the West Coast. And then they do one on the West Coast. And then they do a couple others throughout the country. And so rarely is the correct philosophy, do it all yourself. Hybrid is the answer. And the question is, how do we want to do hybrid? How do we want to get the customer service balanced with the cost of transportation and the cost of inventory? And that's the modeling that we need to do and we need to understand. And it's really critical we do that because it's going to change from year to year to year. And so that's proper thinking. We did a project for a toy company back in the 1990s. And the toy company says, we want to build warehouses throughout the country so we always have the best plan. I'd say, great, where are the products coming from? Well, they said, well, this year they're coming from China, but last year they came from Korea. The year before there was Pokemon, it came from Mexico. It was all printed product. And the year before that was fleece. And so it comes from different. I said, well, if your requirement's going to change year to year to year, here's what we want to do. We're going to build one facility for you, and we're going to put that in Salt Lake City. And then the rest of the country will be three PLs that will change up on a year or let's go with a big player. So they have multiple facilities. We can do one contract, tell them we'll decide where we want to be at based on where the product's coming from. And then we really have the ability to have options as the years go along. And that's going to be the right solution. You know, over the years, as I sell myself, and I'm talking to first-time prospects that are doing it in-house, they reach the tipping point where they're thinking maybe they should outsource. And the biggest concern I hear is, I'm afraid I'm going to lose control if I outsource it. And I say, well... To me, outsourcing is like going to a restaurant for dinner. If I'm not happy with the service, if I'm not happy with the food, I'm going to say something and I'm going to demand they make it right. On those rare occasions when I eat at home and my wife just doesn't really hit it right on the spot, I don't say a blessed thing. I say, it's great, honey, best (laughs) meal you've ever made. And I says, that's the difference between in-house and outsourcing. You actually have more control. You can be more critical. You can set right the bar where you want, and you're paying someone to do it. So I'm not sure if that's good logistics advice or if that's good marital advice, but either one, Harry, I buy. I'm with you. (laughs) Let me ask you this question. It's a little bit on the personal side, but I think it's interesting. If you could go back a few decades... What advice would you give your younger self? Well, do we have an hour? (laughs) I guess the one thing, the one thing that really hits me on that, Harry, is hold your people accountable. Don't try to carry the other guy's lunch. I'm basically a nice guy, and I like to get along with the people I work with or the people that work for me. And I guess probably the biggest mistake I've made in my career is I'll have someone working with me that's not really getting it, but I like the person. And so instead of taking the corrective action that I should, what I do is let it kind of hang in there. 
and then that festers and it gets worse and it gets worse and worse. And then finally, when we have a major breakdown, I kind of sit there and go, you dummy, why didn't you have the gumption to step up? Ignoring it doesn't help the problem. So I, I would say, Jim, holding people more accountable is really important and not doing it is hurting you and them. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at amwarefulfillment.com. Great, great advice. Jim, where can people go to find out more about you and your company? Well, our website at both TompkinsVentures.com and TompkinsLeadership.com are good places to go. I think also a good thing to do is to hook up with me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with folks. I do one or two blogs a week. Wrote one this morning on, it's not baloney, it's bolony, B-U-L-L-O-N-E-Y, bolony. And it talks about some of the bull that's going on out there today. So I think linking with me and getting some of my blogs is useful. And then, of course, always you can read some of my books and watch some of my videos on YouTube. We're really excited about the growth we're having at Tompkins Ventures. We are global and the business is growing leaps and bounds and we're having a ball. So we'd love to have folks be curious about what we do and how we do it. Jim Tompkins, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. The time just absolutely flew by. Well, Harry, I enjoyed it as well. And thank you for taking a half hour of my time to make it enjoyable today. <laughs>